This is the word of God. So Wes, you can come on forwards. Grateful to have Wes Hebert here. Um, Wes's wife, uh, Christina, is, was feeling a little unwell this morning, so she's not with us. Uh, they have a son, uh, Ezra, correct? Um, how old is Ezra? They'll be three in February. Almost three. Um, but I'm grateful for Wes being here amongst us. He's a pastoral resident at Valley Bible Church down in White River Junction and a student at Midwestern uh, Theological Seminary. And so I'm excited to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Thank you, brother. God bless you. I'm actually going to pray for him while we, before, as we get going here. Lord, I lift up uh, Wes to you. I know it's hard to be um, in a new place with new folks. Um, but God, I pray you would empower him to speak the truth to us this morning. Whatever you've laid on his heart. We pray that we would be open, attentive, and receptive to all that you have to say to us this morning through us. Be glorified, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I invite you to keep your copy of God's Word open in Romans 14. Uh, real quickly, uh, as somebody who is constantly reminded of my deep need of the Holy Spirit, join me in one brief word of prayer before I begin. Father, I ask that you would use me, uh, the weak and humble vessel that I am, to proclaim your word, uh, your truth, with boldness by your spirit this morning. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to be receptive to the truths that Paul has here, a timely word for us in an age of division and disunity. So Lord, I pray that you would uh, just be lifted up, that we would see Christ clearly uh, and be reminded of the truths of the gospel which unites us together under one Lord and one Savior. It is in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, when I had originally spoken to Josh about preaching, I had told him uh, that I had planned to preach from the Gospel of Mark. I've been going through Mark with our high school students over at Valley Bible, and so I figured I would do that uh, just to kind of double dip a little bit with what I had been doing. However, the other week I threw a curveball to Josh and asked if I could change the text on him. One of the difficult things about pulpit supply is that feeling of kind of parachuting in and preaching to a completely unknown group of people. Uh, a lot of my time during sermon prep, other than my labors in the Word itself, is really spending time considering who are my hearers and how the Word can apply to them directly. And so in the case of pulpit supply, it becomes difficult because I don't know you. I hope to know you all over time, but uh, it's difficult, especially that first time. However, back in October, I was at a preaching workshop. Uh, we were going through the book of Romans, and one of my assigned texts to work on was Romans 14. And I spent that week hearing from uh, men, seasoned pastors, uh, all over upstate New York, uh, and kind of the things that they were going through, the wrestling through in their own ministries. And in light of these past few years, one of the common themes that I saw in all of their churches were struggles with disunity and division, politics, COVID, church abuses, social media, all of these things fueling the flame of fervent disunity. So I reached out to Josh to ask about switching my text because I believe that Paul's message to us here in Romans 14 this morning is evergreen in the church. It is something that we all need to hear regularly. It's a timeless truth from a very timely text. And I think our experience of division 
today is not something that is isolated throughout the history of the church. The church has always had to deal with these issues. And here in Romans 14, Paul is speaking directly to the church in Rome about the importance of unity within the people of God and what that is to look like. Even the church in Rome, who Paul has lauded repeatedly for their obedience, struggled with division. So I've broken up the text into three main parts, as you can see in the outline. First, in verses 1 through 3, Paul establishes the basis of our unity, even amidst diversity. And then second, in 4 through 18, he addresses various barriers to our unity. And finally, in 19 through 23, he gives advice on how to build up our unity. So let's look here together, starting with verse 1. He writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul begins by explicitly admonishing his audience to welcome the weak. But we have to ask ourselves the question, who are the weak that Paul is speaking of here? Well, he says that they are the weak in faith. And I don't think this means necessarily that they were weak in the sense that their salvation was somehow in question, that they were doubtful of the gospel of Jesus Christ, nor do I think it means that they were somehow morally weak, that they were failing or sinful. No, given the context, as we'll see, it seems evident that they have the gospel essentials down, but this has more to do with non-essentials, opinions, as he says. One of Paul's main aims with Romans is to bridge a divide between Jew and Gentile in the church of Rome. So it seems to me here that the weak in faith are likely Jewish Christians, specifically, whose weakness was tied to their continuous conscientious commitments to regulations regarding diets and days, as we'll see. The weakness, then, is that they were unsure that their faith permitted them to do certain things. The strong, then, to whom Paul is speaking would be those who understand the freedom that we have been given through Christ. But we'll get to that in a moment. So then in verse 1, Paul is telling the strong to welcome the weak. However, he also adds that we are not to welcome them in order to quarrel or dispute over opinions. It's as if he's saying, don't welcome the weak just to debate with them over their diet. Don't invite them over just so you can correct them about their opinions. John Stott, an Anglican theologian who I'm a big fan of, said it well. He said, we are not to turn the church into a debating chamber whose chief characteristic is argument still less into a law court into which weak persons are put into the dock, interrogated, and condemned. The church isn't to be a debating chamber or a law court for the weak. On the contrary, it's to be a place where the strong welcome the weak. In verses 2 and 3, he elaborates on the relationship and the diversity within the church between strong and weak. He tells the strong not to despise the weak, because they abstain from eating and eat only vegetables. He tells the weak not to judge the strong because they eat what they feel is not unclean. Read with me. He says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. 
And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Paul is using this example of dietary restrictions causing division within the church. And again, this makes sense if we consider the Jewish and Gentile relationships within the church, given how important food laws are to the Jews. The strong here are those who are assured that their faith allowed them to eat meat, while the weak are those who believe that they could not eat meat, kind of akin to Daniel in the book of Daniel. And he has different commands here for the strong and for the weak. First, he tells the strong, do not despise the weak. Despise here means to treat something like it has no merit or worth, to devalue it. Paul is telling the strong, do not treat the weak as though they have no value because of their own weakness and conscience. And second, he tells the weak to not pass judgment on the strong for their own liberties. To judge here means to find fault with and condemn something and also to seek to influence and correct it. In contrast, Paul is urging them to welcome one another, for God has welcomed them. Paul is telling them to welcome another, to receive one another, because God has already welcomed them himself. The word Paul uses here for welcome is interesting. Uh, In this context, it means essentially to receive someone into the fellowship of your own heart. And this he is saying, is how God has welcomed us. Clement, a first century bishop of Rome, uses the same word for welcome here uh, to summarize essentially how God has welcomed us. And I think it's done beautifully. And what's amazing too is uh, Clement would have been a contemporary of Paul's, potentially even being one of the recipients of the letter that Paul wrote to Rome. He writes in a letter to Corinth this, The Master, Christ, has welcomed us in love. Because of the love he had for us, he gave his blood for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the will of God, his flesh for our flesh, and his life for our life. God has welcomed us in love by the very blood of his own Son, Jesus Christ. Despite our own sins against him, God has chosen to welcome us in Christ. So then, if God has welcomed our brothers and sisters like this, why is it often so hard for us to welcome them in the same way? Well, Paul addresses various barriers that we have to our unity. So let's take a look here at verse 4 first. He writes, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul is here addressing the weak first in their judgment of the strong. He says, Who are you to judge them? They already have a master, and they will stand or fall before him, not you. He says, the Lord is able to upheld him, to count them righteous. Paul then moves from diets to days, giving another example of a divisive point within the church. Read with me, starting again at verse 5. One person esteems, the same word there for judge, 
one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It seems that the weak here may have believed that one day in particular was more important than other days, while others thought that all days were alike. And again, given the context, more than likely what Paul is talking about here is the Sabbath. And even today among Christians, the Sabbath remains a contentious issue. There are some who would esteem that we should not do anything apart from sacred labors on the Sabbath. No going out, no yard work, no going out to eat, things like that. While others would say that we are not restricted at all on the Sabbath because we are no longer under the law. However, notice that in Paul's mind, he's not correcting one view or the other. He's saying both are permissible. Observing versus not observing. Eating versus not eating. He is only concerned about one thing. They're conscious in their motives. Ultimately, Paul is arguing, all of our religious practices are to be done out of conviction and conscience. This was Paul's primary concern for the church in Rome, whether strong or weak. He urges them to do everything in honor of the Lord and to give thanks to God. How we live and die must come from the conviction that we belong to Christ. When we do anything, we must honor the Lord and give thanks to him. This is Paul's primary concern. And this, he thinks, should shape how we interact with our brothers and sisters. Why? Well, he concludes this section saying this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is foundational to Paul's whole discussion on unity. The reality is that our life is not our own. In life and in death, as we read earlier, Christians belong to the Lord, and he alone is their judge. And he's bought us with a price. Paul writes in verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Christ died that he might make us his own, that he would be Lord of all, living and dead. He gave his blood for our blood, and his flesh for our flesh, his life for our life. It's good to remind us that Jesus is mine, but we also need to remember that we belong to Christ. He is our Lord and our judge. So then who are we to judge the one for whom Christ has died? How can we look at our brother and sister and say, sure, Christ has shed his invaluable, inestimable blood for them, but they drink alcohol or they like to listen to secular music or they like to use a different Bible translation than I do. 
or to make it more tangible, they voted Republican or Democrat or gasp, third party. Or they don't wear masks or they do wear masks or they got the vaccine, they didn't get the vaccine. The list could go on forever. But who are we to judge our brother and sister? They belong to Christ. He alone will be their judge. And he alone is able to make them stand. That's a wonderful comfort to hear, to remind you that he alone is able to make us stand in the midst of all these things. Paul continues, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, Paul addresses both strong and weak here. And to the weak, he says, why do you judge? And to the strong, he says, why do you despise? He then quotes from Isaiah 45 to remind both the strong and the weak that there is a judgment day that is coming when we will give a confession to God, an account, a day when everyone will give an account of himself to God. And you might be thinking, but Wes, Romans 8 reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no judgment. And you are absolutely correct. There is no condemnation. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. It's more akin to Hebrews 9.28, that second appearing when Christ comes not to judge sin, but to save those who believe in him. He has in view not the final judgment and condemnation of unbelievers here, but instead, the judgment that comes for believers, where we give an account for what we did with our lives, the day when Christ will mete out his bountiful rewards to his church and evaluate his servants and their service to him. We are not exempt from the judgment day. We just have a different judgment that comes for us in Christ without condemnation. So how can we judge our brothers and sisters if there's a judgment day that's coming? We have our own selves to consider. One day we will give an account of ourselves before God and we have to ask ourselves, what will we have to say about our lives? Will the account that we give show that we loved those for whom Christ has died? That we welcomed our brothers and sisters just as God has welcomed them, despite our own differences? That we loved the church more than our own lives? Or will it show that we judged those for whom God has welcomed? That we despised those whom Christ has shed his own blood for? Paul drives home the point here in verse 13. It says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In light of everything Paul has said so far, he urges everyone not to judge each other on matters of conscience. Instead, he says that our goal should be to help our brothers and sisters by never hindering their progress in spiritual maturity. There's a play on words here where judge 
and decide here are from the same word. So one New Testament scholar paraphrases it uh, rather tongue-in-cheek. He says, if you are so keen on judging things, here is something to judge. How not to trip each other up? Let us judge then how to keep our brothers and sisters upright, not how to bring them down. And Paul elaborates further. Read again, starting at verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. And notice here that Paul has kind of inserted himself in the camp of the strong now. Nothing is unclean. As a former Pharisee, he would have made it a habit to make a distinction between clean and unclean food. However, Jesus has persuaded him that that distinction was no longer needed. So Paul had adopted a new position on the issue. However, he had also recognized that there were many believers, especially those from a Jewish background, who had not made the leap. He says that the strong believers should not recklessly rush the weak into this transition. No, instead he says a strong Christian, Paul argues, must walk in love and not violate the conscience of a weak believer. I mean, look at the devastation that can result from not walking in love here. He says it can destroy the very work of God. I think do not destroy here is weighty. It means that we, by not walking in love, can bring about the spiritual downfall of our brothers and sisters by teaching them to ignore and violate their own conscience. Now, that might seem like overkill, but consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy, where he tells Timothy that the aim of his preaching is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he immediately follows that by saying, certain persons, by swerving from these, i.e. a good conscience, have wandered away. Paul had seen what happens when people violate their own conscience. It brings ruin to the believer. And not only that, but he says we give the gospel a bad name when we do so. Look at verse 16. He says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The word here for spoken of as evil is the same word that's translated as blaspheme. The original is a little clunky, but to paraphrase it a bit, he is saying, Do not use your liberty, your freedom, which is good and valuable, in such a way that it would become the occasion of evil and make the gospel liable of slander. In other words, Paul is saying, if Christian liberty is not governed by Christian love in the name of Christian unity, the very goodness of the gospel may be wrongly labeled as evil. And Paul continues in verse 17, he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. The kingdom of God, he, he's saying here, isn't about external, non-essentials, like eating and drinking, but it's about the internal essentials granted by the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. And those of us who serve Christ in righteousness, peace, and joy both please God and are approved by men. This is just what Jesus prayed for during his high priestly prayer in John 17, when he prays that we would be one unity, just as he and the Father are one, but there's a purpose for that, so that the world may believe that the Father had sent him. When we are unified around these essentials, righteousness, joy, and peace, then we are able to properly bear witness to the gospel and to the true identity of Christ. And that brings great pleasure to God. What a worthy goal that is for us to have as his people. And now we reach here the final section of the passage where Paul gives us instructions on how to build up unity with our brothers and sisters amidst diversity. He writes in verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We are called to edify our brothers and sisters, to build them up. Every action we should take as a church should help our brothers and sisters to grow and flourish in the gospel. And we are told to pursue peace and that which is for mutual upbuilding. Literally, to run after, to strive for, to pursue peace and upbuilding requires work. Pursuing peace with our brothers and sisters will take great effort at times for us all. Not all of us are very agreeable. I, I think that goes without saying most days. If I haven't made it clear yet, we are a very diverse body of believers. It's one of the things I love about my church is just how big an umbrella sometimes it is. Peace and Christian unity are not always simple, especially when we consider the church and its makeup. So we have to often ask ourselves if we think that unity is really worth the cost. There are some that say, no, I want to have a very small group of very homogenous believers, and that's free for them to do. But I think Paul has made it abundantly clear that unity over the essentials and liberty in the non-essentials is well worth the cost and the work that it takes. And to this end, Paul concludes with instructions to both the strong and to the weak directly. First to the strong, he writes this, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So after urging believers to build each other up, 
he starts by telling the strong, don't break down what God has already built up. Do not, for the sake of food, he writes, destroy the work of God. And we can swap out a number of things in there for food. We can swap out food for voting ballots or alcohol, video games, movies, TV shows, parenting approaches, what have you. Do not, for these things, destroy the work of God. And Paul is urging the strong to limit their own freedom for the sake of our own brothers and sisters. We are not told to surrender our Christian freedoms by any mean, but merely to behave in a way that others won't stumble because of it. One pastor tells a story about Charles Spurgeon, a massively famous 19th century English preacher that I think really communicates the heart of what Paul is saying right here. Spurgeon was, by all accounts, the first megachurch pastor, the prince of preachers. He was known to enjoy cigars for the glory of God. But one day he was walking down the street. This is kind of at the height of his career. He's walking down the street when he saw a store sign that wrote, We sell the cigars that Charles Spurgeon smokes. And in that moment, he made a decision to give up cigars completely. Not because he was suddenly convicted that they were somehow sinful or wrong, but because he came to see that because of his position, what was him for him a freedom might cause another to stumble and fall. And that was the last thing that he wanted in any of his ministry. Nowadays, there are still many Christians that wear their freedoms as a badge for honor, of honor for all to see. But Paul is saying that we shouldn't flaunt our freedom at all. Instead, we should keep it between us and God. I know ever since preparing this sermon, I have been self-evaluating on this a lot. Asking myself, is there anything in my own life that I carelessly carry on about without the consideration of my own brothers and sisters and how it might affect them. It might be the case that many of us don't have anything like that, but it's always worth coming back to and considering these things in our own life. And lastly, Paul has advice for the weak in faith. He says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. While conscious is not an infallible guide by any sense of the word, it is nonetheless wrong for us to violate it. One commentator on this passage summarizes the idea of conscious, I think, really well and how it uh, affects us and the weak. He writes, If a man in his heart believes a thing to be wrong, if he cannot rid himself of the ineradicable feeling that it is forbidden, then, if he does it, for him... It is sin. A neutral thing only becomes right when it is done out of faith. Out of the real, reasoned conviction that it is the right thing to do. The only motive for doing anything is that a man believes it to be right. So what Paul is saying here, and what the commentators summing up for us, is that we should never let any sort of external pressures or anything like that, cause us to violate our own conscience ever. 
Only the Holy Spirit and God's Word can mature us in this way. Like Luther said, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. So as the strong, we should not try to sway the conscience of our fellow believers. And as the weak, we shouldn't feel pressured to do what we feel might be wrong. And to wrap everything up, there is a popular quote that I often like in regards to unity that I think really pulls all the threads here together. In the past, I had heard it attributed to guys like Augustine and Martin Luther, but it turns out to come from a very undistinguished 17th century Lutheran by the name of Rupertus Meldenius. That is a great kid's name. (laughs) Rupert. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. And I think this strikes the right balance as to what Paul is urging us towards here in Romans 14 and in the following chapter. It calls for unity on the essentials, the core truths of the gospel. Although I haven't really got into defining what the essentials are, we just really don't have time for it. It's not what he's talking about in the passage. It is nonetheless critical for us to be confident on the essentials before we can discard discussing what non-essentials are. I'll give you a list of some places to do some reading on this rainy afternoon that can help you start in really hammering down the essentials. First, Romans 1 through 11. Paul's perfect summary, as Martin Luther says, the clearest gospel we have. Then you could spend some time reading some of the creeds and confessions the Heidelberg Catechism. Man, just read question one and answer one, and then you've got it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, our triune God, his all-powerful, all-knowing nature. These things we don't budge on. But regarding non-essentials, we are called towards liberty. And it's, not, it's important for us to see that non-essentials aren't unimportant. The Sabbath, baptism, all these things aren't unimportant at all. However, they are not worth causing divisions within Christ's church. Instead, in matters like these, we must all follow our consciences and subject ourselves to the Word and the Spirit. And we should show love and liberty to our brothers and sisters with whom we may have disagreements over. Because in all things, we must strive for charity. Christian love, which Paul says in Colossians, binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that let us strive for unity within the church. Instead of putting our own freedoms first, let us put our brothers and sisters first. Instead of binding their conscience, let us Limit our own liberties for the sake of, the, of them and for the sake of the kingdom. Instead of judging them, let's love them and welcome them, just as Christ has welcomed them himself. This is true Christian love, and this is true Christian unity. 
Let us pray now, brothers and sisters. Father, the psalmist writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Father, how true that is. Our unity, how it adorns the truths of the gospel and makes its goodness known. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in my life, in the life of the church here in South Royalton, Lord, that you would be in our hearts through your spirit, drawing us together to one another in love and in unity, in harmony and in truth. Lord, I pray that you would use these words. Lord, I pray this morning that the God who gives endurance and encouragement would give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ so that with one heart and mouth, we may all glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and accept one another just as Christ has accepted us so that we may bring praise to God. Amen.